You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. You think he's going to pick up? I don't know. I hope so. After leaving Ukraine, we felt like there was one last person we still had to talk to, Father Damien. We kept texting back and forth with Petro after our interview with him and Father Went, and thought maybe he could get us in touch with the priest in North Carolina. But once we asked if he could connect us, Petro stopped replying to our messages. So, not long after, we found a phone number for Father Damien, or at least one we thought was his. Your call has been forwarded to an automated messaging system. With no answer, we decided to try sending him a message. Hello, Father Damien. My name is Paula. We hoped knowing that we talked to Father Went and Petro would make him comfortable speaking with us. We feel it would be unfair to finalize the series without your voice and your perspective on everything that happened. Okay, so we just sent him the message. Um, okay. Oh my God. And I have two blue check marks, so that means... That, that means he read it, right? He's reading it right now. It says online. Oh my God, I'm dying. Okay. okay. Almost a full day later, we got a response. Thank you for your offer, but I do not wish to participate in your podcast. We sent a follow-up, but as of right now, we still have not heard back. I'm Paula Barrows. And I'm Melanie Bartley. And this is Sacred Scandal. He's in a difficult position. He's fairly intelligent. He can be somewhat manipulative. That's why I hesitate, because I just didn't see the level of detail. It just reeks. Power corrupts. And I sense that there was some corruption. I don't know what the story is. I don't think anybody ever will. When we got back from Ukraine, it felt like we didn't get the definitive answers we were looking for. Our conversation with Father Went was strange, and at times he felt so evasive. 
like when we asked if he thought Father Damien may have been abusing Mike, and his response was that he asked Mike, a teenager and the potential victim, if his relationship with Damien was okay, but Mike didn't bring up that he was being abused. Or how he asked Petro if he was the subject of pedophile activity, rather than just outright saying he never harmed anyone. It was strange. In the end, we got answers, but not clear ones. Maybe he was doing his best to both break the two decades of silence, but still not incriminate anyone. And we worried that maybe we didn't push hard enough on those questions about sex abuse. When we asked Went about them sharing a bed, that was the only moment of the night where I felt him getting really upset. Yeah. When he basically said, let me ask the question that you're trying to ask. Mm Mm-hmm. And let me ask him directly, were you ever a subject of pedophile activity? And he says no. Definitely lost his patience. Yeah. Why, though? Like, why? Why Why was that so triggered? Like, was he It could be triggering to- because he's tired of being asked that question. You know, I'm playing devil's advocate on both sides, babe. Like, we have to do that. And I think we have this entire time. We have been more than generous. We've been so generous. We totally have. I'm concerned that people are going to be mad at us for being too nice to them. I'm terrified that I'm going to sound like, you know... Um... Too agreeable, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we've we've done that. We've definitely given them the benefit of the doubt. And... <sighs> Did I ever expect that Father was going to say yes? No. 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 Part of what got us started on this project was feeling like those abuse allegations were true, that there could be no other way that Mike would have exploded in the way that he did and murdered Sister Michelle so brutally had nothing else gone on. And we felt supported in feeling that way. He passed a polygraph, and all the experts and police and lawyers who we interviewed more than 10 years ago told us that they believed Mike was abused too. But this year... Something really rocked us when we went back and talked to some of those same investigators again. Assistant State Attorney Gil Levine, who sided with the defense on this issue, and who Father Went and Petro said made their lives hell by chasing those allegations, told us she now doubted Mike's claims. I will also tell you this, that I think his statements, all of them, lack detail. When somebody's really a victim of a crime... They can recount it with a detail that only they would know. I would have been more convinced if the detail of the sexual relationship was more explicit. A discussion of what happened during the anal sex. I think that people will actually, sometimes, not all the time, but if there was no other physical evidence, if there was nothing, if there was a level of detail... Lying on top of one another, there's no discussion of anything graphic that may be uncomfortable for us to talk about. That's why I hesitate, because I just didn't see the level of detail. When I walked out of that room, when I interviewed him with the sexual batteries detectives there, I was like, there's no level of detail. And there's like, Gail, there's no level of detail. 
We asked her what she meant by this, and she said that basically Mike described his own abuse less clearly than victims younger than him. She said that he talked about sex almost like someone who had no idea how it actually worked. If one of his biggest supporters was doubting Mike, we now had no idea what to believe. But our perspective changed again when we talked to Melanie Sakota of the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. We heard from her in our episode about the Orthodox Church in America. We told her about our new doubts, and she gave us her own opinion of Mike's allegations. I wanted to ask you, just from your experience dealing with so many abuse survivors, what was your um, impression of Kofel and his experiences? We always believed him. Yeah. They deposed him or whatever after he had pled guilty and he told as much as he could remember about the abuse. I think if any of those other boys had said, yes, this happened to me too, I think we would have had a whole different situation. Is it common in your experience for the people surrounding the victim know something or they have experienced the same thing but just deny it? Yes. I mean, there's a couple reasons why that happens. There's something called trauma bonding where they feel obligated to protect their abuser. And not all survivors remember their abuse. You know, some put it into a little, if you will, a little box at the back of their head And these guys are still, um, what is awful, must be, what, 40? I mean, you know, the average age for a survivor to come forward is 52. So you may have that these guys just haven't come forward yet. You also have, sometimes you have people who begin to identify with their abuser. As a matter of fact, I think um, there's a study that says that one-third of survivors will take their secret to their grave. They will never tell another soul what happened to them. So it is not unusual for people to deny that they were abused, whether they either don't remember, they can't handle it, or whether they are bonded to their abuser, or whether they identify with their abusers. We started to wonder if this was the case for Mike too. And that sent us on a mission. Last year, we started having more serious conversations about his abuse. We wanted to see if he was able to talk about what happened in more detail than he did 20 years ago. As he got more comfortable talking about it, he gave us some very vivid descriptions of how he claimed to be raped, and in more detail than we read in any of the police reports. But as we talked to him, it also sounded like he started to remember other things for the first time, too like the names of porn movies that he says he was made to watch on TV. I remember one was called Desert Heat. Uh, that was just soft porn. We also wondered if maybe any of the former monastic candidates would be able to recall anything differently as adults. We thought maybe now, if they were victims too, they might be willing to come forward. We tracked down a few of the former monastic candidates, and though we never heard back from most of them, others said they wanted to remain private about their time at Holy Cross. Only Ilya Herzog was willing to speak with us. And though he said he was never abused and never saw anything with his own eyes, he said his adult perspective now allows him to see some of his own experiences at the monastery differently. 
In hindsight, he told us how Mike's behavior after spending time alone with Father Damien now felt strange. But there were other things, too. Well, the only weird thing that I remember about me, it was uh, when I came there, before going to school, uh, I had to do some medical check. But the doctor was checking everything, like I was making them, and and Father Vent stayed in the, that room. He said that it's normal for a priest, for him, for our to stay when I was with the doctor. It was weird. Uh, I, I didn't like it, but uh, I didn't have the choice. I I don't I don't know how to conclude something that is just so inconclusive. Sh- all the shades of gray. Yeah. Well, you believe what you believe, and I I believe what I believe. Yeah, and I guess we'll let people believe what they believe, and hopefully one day we'll get someone come out and say, "Hey, this happened to me too," or yeah. Or they're lying because this is the evidence that Mike was lying or or yeah. something like that that will give us closure. Yeah. But it's been 20 years and that hasn't happened yet, so... Coming up after a break we get a new perspective on why Mike may have gone after Sister Michelle and not his alleged abusers. Stay with us. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, 
Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome back to Sacred Scandal. Yeah, I was just thinking about it, you know, I'm not a killer. I'm not, no way, it's not, it's not me. What happened, I just can't, I don't even remember. One of the questions that has lingered long in our minds is this. If Mike was being abused by the priests, and most of his trauma was coming from them, then why did he murder Sister Michelle Lewis? And of course, we put this question to him loads of times, and his answer is always the same. He's consistent. I just, this rage was totally, felt like different person. Like, I was, and I feel like I was in control, just the rage, totally, I just snapped, that night I just, I just snapped. I snapped, he tells us. He always says he just lost control and had no idea what he was doing. But we wanted to know if that's really a legitimate reason, like a certified clinical justification. So we reached out to Dr. Carol Clark, a known trauma therapist in Miami, whose books I've seen around the city. After reviewing the case with her, we got Dr. Clark's thoughts. The question that, like, plagues everyone in this case is why did he kill Sister Michelle and not the person who was allegedly abusing him? How common is it for the abuse to take out their rage on someone else? So I'm going to speak strictly in generalities and what's typical. Of course. Okay. So we have the person in power would be the priest, the priest is the one that is taking care of the boys, taking care of Mihalo. And so that's the one that he's depending on for survival. So you can't piss off the person on whom your survival depends. You can't attack them. You can't do anything because then what happens, you know, once that person is gone or that person turns against you? It does not surprise me to hear a story where we have these priests who are in control, that have the power, are doing the abuse, but then we have the victim looks and says, who is supposed to be taking care of me and not? Who can I safely put my anger on? And it would be, you know, this woman. So that would be my guess. We also reached out to the psychologist who first worked with Mike after the murder to get his perspective. Okay. My name is uh, John Quintana. I have a uh, PhD in psychology from uh, Bryn Mawr College as um, their Department of Human Development. Dr. Quintana was brought onto the case by Mike's defense attorney, Edith Georgie. I mean, my background is with uh, criminal cases, I mean, with the Federal Bureau of Prisons and all that, and also in a background in uh, sexual victimization and uh, sexual predators or sexual offenders. I guess given that background, Edith felt that uh, it would be good for me to evaluate him 
and get a sense of what was going on. He and I spoke not long ago, and he said he did about four days of psychological testing with Mike after his confession. He also interviewed him about his personal history. Dr. Quintana said Mike opened up to him about his father's drinking and how his mom mostly accepted the abuse by her husband. We also talked about Mike's allegations of sexual abuse. Was your sense that he was being truthful and that he had in fact been a victim of sexual abuse? On the face, yes. In your experience, did you feel like Mihailo's, the way he described the abuse that he experienced, did it check out? I mean, was it detailed enough? Did it seem like he would be lying to kind of justify what, what he did? Well, initially when I interviewed him, the details weren't very specific. And I think that that's where the point that he was at and maybe comfort level of, of being able to reveal things that may have been difficult for him. So I got a certain level of and description of abuse. And so I can understand if I don't get a full description or full details initially in an evaluation, because that may not always be forthcoming. But he seemed uh, uh, sincere in his presentation. Of course, as you look at the history of it and um, you understand a little bit more of the case and the detective's descriptions of, of him were that he could look you in the eye and tell you he didn't do it because initially he denied the allegations. He denied that he killed uh, mm -hmm. Michelle, but he did it in a very convincing way. <laughs> but in reading the descriptions of the detectives, it seemed that they weren't sure, even though he had scratches and other features, because he, he initially was very convincing. So he may be convincing both ways. Okay, that's a good point. He's in a difficult position. He's fairly intelligent. He can be somewhat manipulative. After talking with Mike, Dr. Quintana was unclear about his motivation to murder Sister Michelle. But in looking at more of the evidence from that night, the psychologist had a theory. He was angry, and his intent was initially, because he did bring implements of violence with him. He brought a uh, knife. He brought a, um, a rod, metal rod. But he also brought tape. And it was one of those factors that somehow didn't get checked off clearly for me. It, what was the tape for? In his imagination or in his fantasy of, of what he was about to do, so that was something that's always been a little disturbing to me, is the whole issue of the tape. Yeah, I think we've asked him that a couple times, and he can't really explain it. Yeah. He always goes back to the, I was drunk, I wasn't making any sense. Mm -hmm. I grabbed a glove and a tape and everything, and, and I don't know, I guess that's, it, how, that's how he justifies it. Yes, but it's pretty specific, it's a tape. If I was going to, I guess in my 
my approach to attack somebody, I'm not sure I would bring tape if my intent was to just hurt them and make them feel the pain that I, I felt. And he may justify it or in his own mind, well, it's, I was drunk, so, you know, that's how he explains it. But that's, you know, to me, from my point of view, that's not good enough. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds like you hear that all the time, like mm-hmm. crime shows, like people are saying, I snapped. That's just, to me, seems like a cop-out and such a unsatisfying answer. <laughs> and maybe he means that he became enraged and lost control. Maybe that's what he means. But he needs to specify, he needs to understand what it is that's going on in a more detailed way than just, I snapped. It's too easy. Too easy to explain it often is unsatisfying. So I think it's more defensive on his part and maybe a, a sign that he may not be taking full responsibility. As someone who's also worked with perpetrators of sexual abuse, I know you didn't interview the priests, but what's your overall impression of them? So um, there were seemed to me unethical things going on. If what's being described as um, sleeping in the same bed, whether or not there was any sexual contact, that's unethical. I mean, that's, uh, (laughs) for whatever reason, to save money or not save money, that's certainly not, not an ethical thing to do. The fact that they went from one religion or one Catholic religion to another Catholic religion and then now no Catholic religion. Where is their moral and ethical center? But they lack supervision. That's one of the reasons they had problems with the bishops because they didn't want to be have oversight and uh, they needed oversight. <laughs> Yeah. They needed somebody to tell him, no, no, that's wrong, you know. But he refused to have anybody oversee him. And I think that was part of his downfall. He has to take a look at the decisions he made and how it led to where he's at, too. This is the biggest question of all and yeah. for everybody. Why do you think he killed Sister Michelle and not his alleged abusers? Well, that is a uh, big question. I mean, so whatever I'm saying is all speculation. So there are factors that if he was sexually molested, there is a large proportion of males that are victimized sexually that then become offenders themselves. So that the other issues that kind of pop up in my imagination are issues that have to do with, he was, and I remember him telling me that he wanted to fit in. He wanted to be a normal kid, like the other people, the other teenagers at the school. He wanted to have relationships. He wanted to go to parties. He wanted to probably engage in a sexual relationship. I mean, I know that he tried to um, get girls' numbers and that kind of stuff. So it is possible that one of the underlying motivations that he had was to have a a sexual encounter. Now, given the fact that his father 
was dominating to the mother and the mother acquiesced or at least seemed to acquiesce according to him to the abuse he's getting a message that one possibility is to dominate a female because he's seen it happen whether or not that's something that played in his mind i don't know but you have a person who says he was sexually victimized who then has all these sexually he's a teenager he has all these hormones all these sexual needs going on he can't relieve any he can't meet or satisfy any of his needs and then you add on top what he's saying that he was being sexually molested um so that certainly creates a a pressure cooker but where does he get relief sister michelle is the female and apparently from what i read she wasn't she may not have seemed attractive but she was an attractive lady at some levels and that may have something that he noticed so that's where the tape in my mind could come in speculation but my mind could come in that it was a way to try to immobilize her and who knows maybe having some kind of sexual relation with her the difference of where the violence comes in is that sister michelle was not his mother and she was relent- apparently relentless in warding him off and stopping him and that every time that she fought him apparently he hurt her he stabbed her he hit her to try to immobilize her but he never was able to until she died so it, that's a, a a scenario that is possible given some of the factors given but who knows he would never admit to that if it, i mean i've asked him before and that would be very hard for him in his mind that would make it even harder to accept and live with I also feel like it's I oscillate a lot between like believing him and not believing him because he does seem like a little manipulative at times and my partner and I have been working on this for 15 years and yes. and we talked to him a lot and we visited him yeah. and we're the only people who visited him ever in prison yeah. and so We're like, what if he's just been lying to us this whole time? And at first, we just totally believed him. We never even doubted it. Mm-hmm. And then when we started talking to more people and having interviews like the one we're having now and with the prosecutor and people who have very different opinions, we're like, what What if this whole time he's just been manipulating us into telling his story a certain way when it's it's not true? But once again, it may not just manipulating, but also convincing himself, because mm-hmm. I think that if he had to face a different reality, that would be, could be pretty devastating to him, especially without support, without therapy. In other words, I wouldn't take it totally personally, because he, I think he needs the story he's telling you. He needs it for himself. I mean, that is a crazy, crazy theory. Um, 
I honestly didn't even consider that theory until John Quintana said it that way to me. I was like, wait, it makes more sense than him just snapping. And it's the only thing that he would be embarrassed to admit that he would take to the grave. Yeah. And just me thinking, just from like the sort of closeness that we have of all these years with Mike and the trust and how much trust he's put in us to do this project, uh, the enormous guilt that I feel even saying that theory. For me, I think for you, because we've talked about it. We've cried about it. Yes. Guilt about all of this. Guilt doubting me, Hilo. Guilt believing the priest, doubting the priest. Like, <sighs> you know, like me, seriously, I, if I put out this theory out here, like, that he might have wanted to rape Sister Michelle, like, and me thinking Mike might hear this one day, that I think this might be a possibility, that, that destroys me, <laughs> you know? Me too. This kind of goes back to what we always say, is that we have become really good at compartmentalizing Mike, our friend. Yeah. And then Mike, the killer. Yeah, two different people. Mike, Mike, the guy who calls us every other day, who we joke with, who we yeah. met his parents, and we, we worry about his safety, what, everything he needs. He writes jokes. I don't know, like that guy. That guy. And the guy who we remember did what he did when we look at the at the crime scene crime photos. Scene photos and that's the only time that it kind of like blends together and we like stop when i look at the crime scene photos i can't even pick up his phone calls for a few days i can't <laughs> it's just no i mean I, I wish i had a beautiful packaged dancer at the end of this therapeutically for me <laughs> And, you know, even after talking to Went for three hours. We still don't know. I have to come to terms with the fact that this podcast might wrap and we leave our listeners feeling exactly the same way that we have been feeling. Because we're not going to get that confirmation, right? So Unless someone comes out and says, I was abused by these people. Yeah. Or I saw it happen. Or, yeah. Then we're never going to get corroboration and we're never going to get our nice little bow at the end of the story yeah or unless Mike says hey guys like (laughs) I was lying it's how I justified stabbing Sister Michelle I I had to justify it somehow maybe what Mike is saying isn't true let's put ourselves in that situation that Mike is totally lying to us about the sex abuse right yeah how do you justify a 50 something year old man sharing a bed with a teenage boy. Why would this older man share a bed with a boy? And there's no way in my mind that I can justify that. After a break, an old friend has a different take on Sister Michelle's murder. We'll be right back. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200 k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. 
And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome back to Sacred Scandal. I'm Paula Barros. And I'm Melanie Bartley. Aside from the guilt we felt over believing Mike, there's another aspect to telling this story that's weighed on us all these years. I also feel guilty towards Sister Michelle and like us befriending this guy who did this to her. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. This woman, this poor 39-year-old woman who's just a, an innocent person who was brutally stabbed multiple times. Just like, and can you imagine, I imagine the fear. This is going to sound really stupid, but the other day I cut my finger and I was bleeding yeah. and, and it really hurt. Yeah. And then I thought of Sister Michelle and I was like, can you imagine being cut like that, stabbed yeah. deeply, like... 90-something times, you look this person in the eye who you know, who you've known for years, and they're the ones who are killing you? It is horrible. Can you imagine that horrible way to die? I just, I can't. I I, I feel tremendous guilt for even helping this guy out or or picking up his phone calls. Sister Michelle's death sometimes felt overshadowed by everything else that started to come out of Holy Cross almost immediately after she died. Unlike the priests from Holy Cross, her silence all these years was not a choice. We wanted to know more about her than what Mike told us, and also more about what she was like before she came to Holy Cross. We reached out to her family, but they didn't get back to us, and we get why they may not want to be involved. But Melanie and I were able to get in touch with one of Sister Michelle's oldest friends. My name is Beverly Frazier, and I grew up down the street from Shelley and her family. I would have considered her my best friend mm-hmm. growing up. And Shelley, that's what you guys would call her? Shelley. I would call her Shelley, yes. <laughs> you call her Sister Michelle. I always knew her as Shelley. Beverly and Shelley grew up together in Ohio. They were a year or two apart in age, but close. Beverly says she hung around the Lewis's house enough that growing up, she felt like Shelley's mom was her own. 
She and Shelley would sit around and listen to baseball games together on the radio and talked about life and religion. Shelley was talented. She loved ice skating. Ice skating was her winter Olympic sport, but gymnastic was her summer Olympic sport. Uh, so we would watch gymnastics and ice skating and we would talk and walk and she had beautiful fingers. She had long eyelashes. She took care of herself. She was a thinker. She was probably the most intelligent person that I knew I have ever known. She was the valedictorian of her class. When Michelle got married, Beverly was in the wedding. They chose the fabric and sewed all the bridesmaids' dresses together. She liked silver. She liked bright colors. And there was satin and there was purple. And I mean, you know, that all mattered. And when the marriage started to come undone, after Michelle moved to Miami, Beverly says the two of them talked through the divorce together. They came from different religions. Michelle Catholic and Beverly Protestant, but both shared a strong commitment to their faith. So were you surprised when she said, Beverly, I want to become a nun? To be honest with you, no. She was very grounded. That's where she found hope. Again, I understand I'm Protestant. That's not something that I would necessarily choose, but there is a rhythm to that life that I could understand Shelley desiring. After Shelley became Sister Michelle, Beverly says the pair saw even less of one another. After joining Holy Cross, she told us the nun only came back to Ohio maybe twice in a handful of years. And when she did return, it was Michelle's appearance that struck her the most. I remember the thick leather belt and the heavy habit and um, she was wearing her glasses at the time, and Shelly wore contacts. I mean, from sometime just after high school through most of her adult life that I knew her, she wore contacts. And do you remember how she would describe her life there? Was she happy? Did she sound happy to you? I, I think she had found some sort of contentment. Which is what you want for your friends. I, I mean, you don't get to choose the road that they travel, right? Right. You walk alongside of them. And I think she had found, again, I'm going to use the word rhythm, but I think she had found a place where she, where she was. I don't think it was everything she wanted it to be. It was her path. She was serving in a manner in which she felt she was called to serve. I do believe that. I'm going to ask you a question because it's something that it just repeats over and over in my head and it doesn't really fit. But Misha says that Sister Michelle would call the candidates names and one time, you know, or a couple times called him Ukrainian trash, for example. I want to know if you find that, that that's something that would be characteristic of her or not. That is totally out of character for her. I can't, ima I, I can't imagine her saying that. Shell went to an inner city school. She was probably, for the 80s, the late 70s and early 80s, she was extremely progressive. Extremely progressive. She didn't stay in a safe space to get her education. So for that to be said, I, I, it 
just doesn't sound like her to me. That's not who I knew. So I want to know if you have any feelings particularly towards Father Went or anyone from Holy Cross. I have very strong feelings about them. I I don't know, and I find it very disturbing. Again, this is something that was done. It just reeks. It, it just reeks. Power corrupts, and I sense that there was some corruption. I believe that Shelley was a sacrifice, and they let her be. They allowed her, if you can imagine... They allowed her to be the scapegoat for what their dreams were, and they did nothing to protect her. When you say that she was a scapegoat, what do you mean? I think that a hurting individual needed to hurt somebody else. He couldn't hurt those that were hurting him, and he sought the next best thing. And that's really what a scapegoat was. A scapegoat was... Biblically, what happened was a goat was brought in and all of the sins of the people were laid upon that goat. And that goat was sacrificed and removed from the community and taken out so that the people could be washed clean. That's what a scapegoat is. And for me... In my humble opinion, Shelley was the scapegoat for me. He needed to be cleansed in some way. And all of the circumstances led him to her. Do you, in your heart, believe that Mihailo may have been abused sexually by the priest? Of course I do. I don't know what the truth is, but I'm also looking at it with a set of eyes that says that these men have not necessarily come out and given their side of the story either. And I see a lot of secrecy, a lot of, I mean, again, I see it as a power thing. I don't, I, it, I don't know. I don't understand. I find no justice in it. What if I said that and left it at that? You know, I wish I could save my life for hers, and I still feel bad every day. And of course, I, I wish the priest would admit what he did. I was to say what it did to me, to others. In about five years, depending on good behavior, Mihailo Kofel will be released from prison after serving about 85% of his sentence. From there, the 40-something-year-old will go into ICE custody and then be put on a plane and never allowed to enter the U.S. again. Most likely, he'll fly to Kyiv, Ukraine's capital. After that, he'll make his way about 350 miles to his parents' village and pick up his life as he left it when he was 14 years old. 
We worry about Mike adapting to life outside of prison. He has never really had to take care of himself at all. He went from sharing a bed with his parents to living in a monastery to prison. And we wonder what his expectations are once he gets back to Ukraine. What are your fantasies? Like, what do you fantasize about life after prison? <laughs> yeah, well, of course, just, uh, just having, you know, regular normal life, you know, just, uh, of course, having a girlfriend. You know, just you know, regular things. Another thing is it's going to be so damn quiet, especially in my town, especially in your own house, your, your own room, just really quiet. It'd be pro- just something really alien, you know, because it's, Especially right now, you know, in, in open day, which is just, you yeah, have no privacy whatsoever. It's always loud. And in prison, you know, yeah, having privacy and just being in a room is like, damn. Yes, so, yeah, of course, it's another weird. Just, you know, of course, just walking outside. Man, it's, it's a really sensitive subject. I hate thinking about it because I was 18 and I got locked up. And right now, I've been locked up for over 20 years. So I, I spend more time in prison than being free. And it's really, it's going to be tough. Yeah, it's going to be tough. After Melanie and I left Ukraine a few weeks ago, we thought the country felt so far from those days after the collapse of the Soviet Union and nothing like that place the investigators described. The cities felt modern, There were nice shops and restaurants. People were out enjoying the dry winter nights. They seemed happy. We even said we could see ourselves living there. But now, in the wake of the war in Ukraine, who knows what the future holds for Mike? And the same goes for the priests of Holy Cross. It seems like they were just figuring out how to get themselves settled after the failure of their medical center. But maybe the invasion made their plans uncertain. When we started on this project, we were looking for closure. We wanted to feel like we knew definitively what happened. But it has me thinking about what Dr. Quintana said about Mike, that he needs his version of the story in order to survive. And maybe that goes for everyone. The priests, the students, the lawyers, us. At the start of this, there are so many things we never thought could have happened. We never thought we would talk to Father Went, that Mike would maybe return to a country at war, or that Gail Levine would change her side of the story. But that gives us hope that someday, other stories might change, and we'll finally know everything that really happened at Holy Cross. Next week, we'll be back with a bonus episode of the show. We'll be answering some of the questions you emailed us through the weeks and sharing some moments that didn't quite make it into other episodes. So be sure to look out for that. Sacred Scandal is a production of Exile Content Studio in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. Sacred Scandal was created and produced by Melanie Bartley and me, Paula Barros. 
Our senior producer is Dennis Funk of Written in Air. The executive producers are Rose Reed and Nando Villa. Production, mixing, and sound design by Helena DeGroote. Our production assistant is Imani Leonard. The show is fact-checked by Kimberly Winston. Original music and final audio mixing comes from Patrick Hart. If you like the music from this show, check out the episode notes for a link to listen to it. This show was made with the help of a lot of other people, too. Yulia Tarasuk, Dr. Mariana Toft-Korshinska, Nancy Mano, Alex Dumas-Pierre Jr., Ariel Stevenson, Corey Chakowsky, Patchy Quinones, Rachel Ward, Brian Robertson, George Drake Jr., Brett Ashley Bridges, Alyssa Mardinay, Michael Haziza, Greta Weber, Andres Beligoy, Javier Puga, and Travis Roig. If you'd like to reach out, email us at hello at sacredscandalpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Sacred Scandal. Thank you for listening. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.